This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Welcome to our 18th annual Writers' Symposium by the Sea at Point Loma Nazarene University. I'm Dean Nelson on the journalism faculty at the university, and it's a, it's a huge honor to have Billy Collins with us this evening, former U.S. Poet Laureate, author of uh, 10 published volumes of poems. His poems have appeared in The New Yorker, The Atlantic, Rolling Stone, and some other kind of places we're going to, uh, we're going to talk about tonight. Uh, he is a poet like none you have ever experienced before in a live setting like this. Would you give a writer's symposium welcome to Billy Collins? Well, I feel the pressure is a little on now, something you've never heard of. Uh, Great to be here and part of the symposium by the sea. It's great to do anything by the sea, um, even a symposium. And thank you, Dean, for for guiding me around. So I'm going to read a few poems, and then uh, we're going to have a little conversation. And I'm going to start with a couple of new poems. Um, And this one is... uh, is uh, about, uh, or it begins to be about, a, uh, an American natural phenomenon that some of you uh, have heard of and maybe even witnessed. And it's called the Sandhill Cranes of Nebraska. Too bad you weren't here six months ago, was a lament I heard on my visit to Nebraska. You could have seen the astonishing spectacle of the Sandhill Cranes, thousands of them feeding and even dancing on the shores of the Platte River. There was no point in pointing out the impossibility of my being there then because I happened to be somewhere else. So I nodded and put on a look of mild disappointment, if only to be part of the commiseration. It was the same look I remember wearing about six months ago in Georgia when I was told that I had just missed the spectacular annual outburst of azaleas brilliant against the green backdrop of spring, and the same in Vermont six months before that, (laughs) when I arrived shortly after the magnificent foliage had gloriously peaked, Mother Nature, as she is called, having touched the hills with her many-colored brush, a phenomenon that occurs, like the others, around the same time every year, when I am apparently off in another state, (laughs) stuck in a motel lobby, with the local paper and a styrofoam cup of coffee, busily missing God knows what. So lurking, uh, or even more overtly, in pretty much every poem, there's a little indebtedness, because poems don't come out of uh, nowhere, and there's usually some trigger, some preceding Phenomenon. In this case, I don't think I would have written that poem were it not for um, a former poet laureate and a wonderful poet, Howard Nemiroff. And um, a while back, a number of us were asked to, uh, a number of writers were asked to make up a new word and to uh, someone who was going to compile a dictionary, and they actually 
went ahead and did that of new words. And the idea was not to be funny, it was to actually find uh, a hole in the language where a word should be and then and fill it with a made-up word. But the best word in the, uh, in the dictionary, I thought, was by Howard Nemiroff. And uh, <clears throat> it was a verb, transitive verb, and the verb was to azaleate. <laughs> and uh, you can almost guess, to azaleate someone means uh, to needlessly commiserate with some visitor about a local attraction that they just missed by arriving too late or will miss because they're leaving too early. So, so you have all been azaleated, I'm sure. So this poem is, uh, this next poem is, um, the transition here is that this poem is an example of the greatest, most overt um, indebtedness a poem can exhibit. And that occurs when a poet wants to write a version of, of a particular poem by someone else. And there's a little protocol involved, and that is you use the same title as the, as the poem you're imitating. And then under that, you use the expression after with the author's name. So you say after Whitman, or you know this, after Matthew Arnold. And I wanted to write a poem um, uh, an imitation, if you will, or a version of a poem by the Chinese poet Li Po. And his poem is called Drinking Alone. So I wrote Drinking Alone on a piece of paper, and under it I wrote after Li Po, and then I got completely tangled up in the expression after Li Po. <laughs> so this is as far as it got. <clears throat> Drinking Alone after Li Po. This is not after Li Po the way the state is after me for neglecting to pay all my taxes, nor the way I am after the woman in front of me on the long line at the post office. Li Po, I am not saying after you as I stand holding open one of the heavy glass doors that divide the centuries in a long corridor of glass doors. No, the only way this is after you is in the way they say it's just one thing after another like the way I will pause to raise a glass of wine to you after I finish writing this poem. So let me get back to sitting in the wind alone among the pines with a pencil in my hand. After all, you had your turn, and mine will soon be done. Then someone else will sit here after me. Thank you. And uh, just to <laughs> underscore the fact that poems can have very uh, common origins, um, and also uh, I do in this poem what I do in several poems, which I, I sort of include the trigger of the poem, in, in include the way it started for me, so as not to get too far ahead of anybody. And the poem is called Cheerios. One bright morning in a restaurant in Chicago, as I waited for my eggs and toast. I opened the Tribune, only to discover that I was the same age as Cheerios. <laughs> Indeed, I was a few months older than Cheerios. For today, the newspaper announced was the 70th birthday of Cheerios, whereas mine had occurred earlier in the year. Already, I could hear them whispering behind my stooped and threadbare back. Why, that dude's older than Cheerios.
the way they used to say, why, that's as old as the hills. <laughs> Only the hills are much older than Cheerios or any American breakfast cereal. And more noble and enduring are the hills, I surmised, as a bar of sunlight illuminated my orange juice. Thank you. Thanks a lot. And here's a poem that is a um, kind of uh, addresses a language tick. You know, something that uh, <clears throat> a way of phrasing things that infects the language and uh, takes over. And it's called "After the Funeral." When you told me you needed a drink, drink, and not just a drink, like a drink of water. I steered you by the elbow into the next bar, which turned out to be a real bar bar. <laughs> Dim and nearly empty, with little tables in the back where we drank and agreed that the funeral was a real funeral funeral, <laughs> complete with a mass, incense, and tons of eulogies. You know, I always considered Tom a real friend friend, you said, <laughs> lifting your drink drink to your lips. And I agreed that Tom was much more than just an ordinary friend. And we concurred that Angela's black dress was elegant, but not like elegant elegant, <laughs> just elegant enough. And after a few hours, when the bartender brought yet another round of whiskeys to our table in the corner, we recognized by his apron and his mighty girth that he was more than just a bartender. A true bartender bartender was what he was, we decided with a respectful clink-clink of our drink-drinks, amber in a chink of afternoon light. <clears throat> Thank you. I have a, a book coming out in, in um, October, and uh, this, I'm going to read the title poem of the book, and it's called Aim, the book is called Aimless Love and other poems, but in this case, it's just aimless love. <laughs> aimless love. This morning, as I walked along the lake shore, I fell in love with a wren, and later in the day with a mouse the cat had dropped under the dining room table. In the shadows of an autumn evening, I fell for a seamstress, still at her machine in the tailor's window, and later for a bowl of broth, steam rising like smoke from a naval battle. This is the best kind of love, I thought, without recompense, without gifts or unkind words, without suspicion or silence on the telephone. The love of the chestnut, the jazz cap and one hand on the steering wheel. No lust, no slam of the door. The love of the miniature orange tree, the clean white shirt, the hot evening shower, that highway that cuts across Florida. No waiting. No huffiness or rancor, just a twinge every now and then for the wren who had built her nest on a low branch overhanging the water, and for the dead mouse still dressed in his light brown suit. But my heart is always propped up in a field on its tripod, ready for the next arrow. After I carried the mouse by the tail to a pile of leaves in the woods, I found myself standing at the bathroom sink, gazing down affectionately at the soap so patient and soluble, so at home in its pale green soap dish, 
I could feel myself falling again as I felt its turning in my wet hands and caught the scent of lavender and stone. Thank you. And here's a poem whose subject is adolescence, which um, I don't think adolescence existed until 1955 um, with uh, Rebel Without a Cause. And uh, now, it can, with grad- the help of graduate school, it can be extended into your 30s. Uh, we're very flexible about how we look at age now. Someone told me recently that um, one's 70s is the last decade of middle age. So, and this is uh, addressed to someone in particular. It's, it's um, titled, To My Favorite 17-Year-Old High School Girl. Do you realize that if you had started building the Parthenon on the day you were born, you would be all done in only one more year? Of course, you couldn't have done that alone, so never mind. You're fine just as you are. You are loved for simply being yourself. But did you know that at your age, Judy Garland was pulling down $150,000 a picture, (laughs) Joan of Arc was leading the French army to victory, and Blaise Pascal had cleaned up his room? No, wait, I mean he had invented the calculator. Of course, there will be time for all that later in your life, after you come out of your room and begin to blossom, or at least pick up all your socks. For some reason, I keep remembering that Lady Jane Grey was Queen of England when she was only 15, but then she was beheaded, so never mind her as a role model. A few centuries later, when he was your age, Franz Schubert was doing the dishes for his family, but that did not keep him from composing two symphonies, four operas, and two complete masses as a youngster. But of course, that was in Austria at the height of romantic lyricism, not here in the suburbs of Cleveland. Frankly, who cares if Annie Oakley was a crack shot at 15, or if Maria Callas debuted as Tosk at 17? We think you are special by just being you playing with your food and staring into space. (laughs) By by the way, I lied about Schubert doing the dishes, but that doesn't mean he never helped out around the house. Bless her little heart. <laughs> here's, something, um, here's something poets get. I, I don't think uh, musicians or playwrights or painters get this, but poets get this all the time. And uh, it's called the suggestion box. <laughs> it all began fairly early in the day at the coffee shop, as it turned out, when the usual waitress said, I bet you're going to write a poem about this after she had knocked a cup of coffee into my lap. (laughs) Then later in the morning I was told by a student that I should write a poem about the fire drill that was going on as we all stood on the lawn outside our building. In the afternoon, a woman I barely knew said, you could write a poem about that, pointing to a dirigible that was passing overhead. (laughs) 
And if all that were not enough, a friend turned to me as we walked past a man whose face was covered with tattoos and said, I see a poem coming. Why is everyone being so helpful? I wondered that evening by the shore of a lake. Maybe I should write a poem about all the people who think they know what I should be writing poems about. It was just then in the fading light that I spotted a pair of ducks emerging from a cluster of reeds to paddle out to open water, the female glancing back over her russet shoulder, just in time to see me searching my pockets for a pen. I knew it, she quacked, (laughs) with a bit of a brogue. But who can blame you for following your heart, she went on. Now go write a lovely poem about me and the mister. Crazy, right? It's a little. Um, well, let's get right to a couple of dog poems here before we get our fur. These are um, um, two poems um, spoken in the voice of dogs, or um, you can imagine actually written by dogs if you like. And this one, and this one, a, a dog is uh, cont- uh, the dog is contemplating one of the um, one of the facts of dog ownership. Although ownership always struck me as uh, in- insufficient word to, descri- uh, to describe that relationship. It's sort of a co-ownership. Um, and it's called A Dog on His Master. As young as I look, I am growing older faster than he. Seven to one is the ratio they tend to say. Whatever the number, I will pass him one day and take the lead the way I do on our walks in the woods. And if this ever manages to cross his mind, it would be the sweetest shadow I have ever cast on snow or grass. Now, you made a little sound there. Um, I don't think there's a word for it, but, but um, that's the problem with writing about... <clears throat> I mean, I sometimes tell... Um, Students in, in poetry workshops, you know, that, that um, I said, why don't you have a dog come into the poem? I mean, it would just be a relief from the self-absorption for a few minutes. <laughs> <clears throat> and dogs just tend to cheer things up. But the danger is that any poem about a, a house pet can get extremely sentimental and produce that sound. So, <laughs> so here, the little task I set out for myself was to write a poem about a dog that would, uh, that would not make you make that sound. <laughs> so um, it's called The Revenant. It's a little longer than the, that poem, but not much. Uh, the Revenant. I am the dog you put to sleep, as you like to call the needle of oblivion. Come back to tell you this simple thing. I never liked you. <laughs> when I licked your face... I thought of biting off your nose. When I watched you toweling yourself dry, I wanted to leap and unman you with a snap. I resented the way you moved, your lack of animal grace, the way you would sit in a chair to eat, a napkin in your lap, a knife in your hand. I would have run away, but I was too weak, a trick you taught me while I was learning to sit and heal, and greatest of insults, 
shake hands without a hand. <laughs> I admit the sight of the leash would excite me, but only because it meant I was about to smell things you had never touched. <laughs> you do not want to believe this, but I have no reason to lie. I hated the car, hated the rubber toys, disliked your friends and worse, your relatives. The jingling of my tags drove me mad. You always scratched me in the wrong place. All I ever wanted from you was water and food in my, my metal bowls. While you slept, I watched you breathe as the moon rose in the sky. It took all of my strength not to raise my head and howl. Now I am free of the collar, free of the yellow raincoat, monogram sweater, the absurdity of your lawn. And that is all you need to know about this place, except what you already supposed, and are glad it did not happen sooner, that everyone here can read and write. <laughs> the dogs in poetry, the cats and all the others in prose. <laughs> So that's where I stand on the cat-dog. <laughs> Here's a poem, it's a sonnet, and it, um, it's, a, it's about the, um, the kind of national uh, phenomenon of um, suddenly the emergence of condominium developments or gated communities, uh, and fair enough, there they are, but... Um, what struck me as someone who's interested in language is that they're always named um, stuff like Deer Hollow and Beaver Meadow and stuff like that. And it occurred to me that you know, these are precisely the animals that were driven out of their habitat <laughs> in order to create these, these housing areas. So, so all the signs then took on a, a sort of sad undertone. And um, so uh, the poem is called The Golden Years. The speaker is uh, retired. A fellow, uh, a widower, in fact, and uh, right, the golden years. All I do these drawn out days is sit in my kitchen at Pheasant Ridge, where there are, are no pheasants to be seen, and last time I looked, no ridge. I could drive over to Quail Falls and spend the day there playing bridge, but the lack of a falls and the absence of quail would only remind me of Pheasant Ridge. I know a widow at Fox Run and another with a condo at Smoky Ledge. One of them smokes and neither can run. So I'll stick to the pledge I made to Midge. Who frightened the fox and bulldozed the ledge? I ask in my kitchen at Pheasant Ridge. Thank you. Here's two little poems. I was that little poem I read about the language tick, and is um, this is a very sh nine-line poem about uh, another kind of thing we find in, in circling in the language. It's called "Oh My God," and the narrator you'll see is uh, extremely kind of born yesterday, uh, naive person. Oh my God! Not only in church and nightly by their bedsides do young girls pray these days. Wherever they go, prayer is woven into their talk. 
like a bright thread of awe. Even at the pedestrian mall, outbursts of praise spring unbidden from their glossy lips. And here's a tiny poem, a four-line poem. I guess when I get a book of poems, uh, like most people, I, I rarely or never read a book of poems from front to back. I'm kind of treat it more like a flip book of some kind. And I'm usually looking for short poems because I love them, and um, I think it's a test. Um, and it's also this is the kind of poem that means nothing without the title. And the title is Divorce. Once... Two spoons in bed, now tined forks across a granite table, and the knives they have hired. That's a good sound right there. <laughs> um, that's another kind of sound. Uh, okay, well, we have time for a couple more. A poem called Grave. Grave. What do you think of my new glasses? I asked as I stood under a shade tree before the joined grave of my parents. And what followed was a long silence that descended on the rows of the dead and on the fields and the woods beyond. One of the 100 kinds of silence, according to the Chinese belief, each one distinct from the others, but the difference is being so faint that only a few special monks were able to tell them all apart. They make you look very scholarly, I heard my mother say, once I lay down on the ground and pressed an ear into the soft grass. Then I rolled over and pressed my other ear to the ground, the ear my father likes to speak into, but he would say nothing, and I could not find a silence among the 100 Chinese silences that would fit the one that he created, even though I was the one who had just made up the business of the 100 Chinese silences, the silence of the night boat and the silence of the lotus, cousin to the silence of the temple bell, only deeper and softer, like petals at its farthest edges. Thank you. Thank you. And here's a, another sort of tiny love poem called Carry, just the verb carry. I want to carry you and for you to carry me the way voices are said to carry over water. Just this morning on the shore, I could hear two people talking quietly in a rowboat on the far side of the lake. They were talking about fishing. Then one changed the subject, and I swear they began talking about you. And um, this is a poem called Nostalgia, and then I'll probably just read one more. Um, And um, you remember the 20th century, or some parts of it, I'm, I'm assuming. Um, so much happened. Uh, um, and 
one of the one of the things that happened in the in the 20th century is that we got into the habit of, of referring to the past in decades. So we'd say very knowledgeably, of course, well, that was like the 50s, or you know, that was a 70s thing. Or then it seemed that you could throw morality out the window as long as you realized what decade it was. She said, "Come on, it's the 80s," you know, um, and. <laughs> The impression was that, you know, at every New Year's Eve, like, everything changed. You know, standards, morality, metaphors, music. Um, so, and the thing was, we were, I always felt we were, we were supposed to feel nostalgic. That was the emotion about the, the passing of these decades. As if we wanted to be stuck in one, in some kind of eternal decade loop. So this plays off that. And it's called, again, Nostalgia. Remember the 1340s? We were doing a dance called the catapult. You always wore brown, the color craze of the decade. And I was draped in one of those capes that were popular, the ones with unicorns and pomegranates and needlework. Everyone would pause for beer and onions in the afternoon. And at night we would play a game called Find the Cow. Everything was hand-lettered back then, not like today. Where has the summer of 1572 gone? (laughs) Brocade and sonnet marathons were the rage. We used to dress up in the flags of rival baronies and conquer one another in cold rooms of stone. Out on the dance floor, we were all doing the struggle. (laughs) While your sister practiced the Daphne all alone in her room. We borrowed the jargon of farriers for our slang. These days, language seems transparent, a badly broken code. The 1790s will never come again. Childhood was big. People would take walks to the very tops of hills and write down what they saw in their journals without speaking. Our collars were high. Our hats were extremely soft. We would surprise each other with alphabets made of twigs. It was a wonderful time to be alive or even dead. (laughs) I am very fond of the period between 1815 and 1821. Europe trembled while we sat still for our portraits. And I would love to return to 1901, if only for a moment, time enough to wind up a music box and do a few dance steps. Or shoot me back to 1922 or 1941, or at least let me recapture the serenity of last month when we picked berries and glided through afternoons in a canoe. Even this morning would be an improvement over the present. (laughs) I was in the garden then, surrounded by the hum of bees and the Latin names of flowers, watching the early light flash off the slanted windows of the greenhouse and silver the limbs on the rows of dark hemlocks. As usual, I was thinking about the moments of the past, letting my memory rush over them, like water rushing over the stones on the bottom of a stream. I was even thinking a little about the future, that place where people are doing a dance we cannot imagine, a dance whose name we can only guess. I think that's good. I'll do one more. Thank you. Thank you so much. I'll do... Uh, um, one more poem. A poem uh, that I came about when I was 
looking through the notebooks of Robert Frost and like most or journals, and like most of them, I mean, there were everything was there, but it was not of uh, equal uh, interest. But what um, I mean, just scribblings and stuff like that, but also drafts of some uh, famous poems. But one little uh, notation caught my eye, and in the corner he had written, "I have I have always envied the four moon planet." At the time, I didn't even know there was a four-moon planet, but apparently Jupiter has four moons, or maybe 27 moons, I'm not sure. But, but Frost, I was curious about why he envied that. The four-moon planet. Maybe he was thinking of the song, What a Little Moonlight Can Do, and became curious about what a lot of moonlight might be capable of. But wouldn't this be too much of a good thing? And what if you couldn't tell them all apart and they always rose together like pale quadruplets entering a living room? Yes, there would be enough light to read a book or write a letter at midnight. And if you drank enough tequila, you might see eight of them (laughs) roving brightly above. But think of the two lovers on a beach, his arm around her bare shoulder, thrilled at how close they were feeling tonight while he gazed up at one moon and she another. You grew up with your mom reciting verses, poems, throughout, uh, throughout your childhood, right? Yeah, well, she didn't really recite them because uh, it wasn't like a terribly literary family. I was the first one to go to college in the family, but she did. Um, she uh, grew up in rural Canada in Ontario, and um, she was born in 1901, and she lived to be 97. So she just about covered the 20th century that we were just referring to. Um, but she, um, she'd, uh, when she grew up, uh, memorization was a very legitimate way to present poetry. And uh, unfortunately, that's kind of been lost. Uh, but she just knew a lot of poems. So it wouldn't be like the poetry hour and she'd mm-hmm. get up and, on the table and recite. But um, almost any occasion, she would have some lines uh, for, uh, often from Shakespeare. If it were cold, if, if, if some friend of hers seemed ungrateful or... So, in other words, poetry was sort of threaded into her talk. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that way, even as a child, I, I recognized that when she started speaking that way, it was a different kind of talk, or it wasn't talk. It was something different from talk and something better than talk. So, and I could kind of hear her modulate. I, I don't even know if I knew if it was poetry but I just knew that she would talk funny, you know, in a yeah. certain way, because she'd come up with these images that she, you know, wouldn't would not be part of her normal speech. Do you assume that that had some kind of a, a marking on you of of how you started thinking, maybe in cadences or in rhythms or in images? I don't know. It's hard. It's hard to say. I mean, a lot of this, you know, kind of constructing how you became what you are is very much. <laughs> Uh, an act of fiction, you might say. I mean, you kind of make it up as you go along. But, um, I mean, Seamus Heaney uh, mentioned something that I think was just as formative for me, and that is uh, 
as an altar boy in a Catholic school, uh, memorizing the Latin responses to the Mass. And um, I didn't know what I was saying, except, I mean, I knew like, you know, Dominus and a few other words in Latin, but basically I was just memorizing syllables, you know, sushi, piat, domino, sacra, fici, like that. And um, he talks about, and I, w- I would echo that, that um, it was an interesting exposure to kind of nonsense in a way. It was pure sound and without, without the meaning. Hmm. And uh, that certainly is a component in, uh, in poetry, sure. just to, that, you, that you go by the ear, you write by the ear. I have a poem in which I mentioned going to camp in the Adirondacks. And... Um, a couple of times, people have said, well, you know, come up after and say, what, what, I went to camp in the Adirondacks, what camp did you go to? And I said, well, actually, I went to camp in the Catskills, um, but Adirondacks sounds better than Catskills. Um, I mean, Adirondacks sounds, it sounds almost Italian, right? Adirondacks. <laughs> Whereas, uh, Which you have, you have to kind of gesture yeah, yeah. when you or, uh, but Catskills is like, blah, blah. It's like, it's a, it's a, spon- it's a spondy, right? So... And there's lots of instances in Shakespeare, particularly, where, where um, sound triumphs over sense. And then you go to graduate school. You get a PhD in what you called obscure poetry. And then you said you wrote obscure poems for years after that. Well, I did. I mean, I, 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 I don't know why, but I wanted desperately to be a poet ever since I was in high school. I just thought, maybe I thought it was just a cool thing to do. Maybe if I thought about it, it also... I mean, I love to read, and I love the solitude of reading, and writing seemed to provide the same kind of solitude, only you were now on the giving part of it instead of the receiving end. Um, so it was, you know, that, that was a sort of switch. But um, I, I didn't, you know, what I understood about poetry at that time was that it was, it was quite hard to understand because I, did, I wanted to be a, a modern poet, a living poet, and it was hard to understand, but you could tell that the speaker was miserable. Uh, <clears throat> that you could understand, and often not much more. Um, and that, this appealed to you? <laughs> well, it, being a poet appealed to me, and I was willing to do anything to be a poet. So, there you if, go. You know, so I wrote obscure poems, and which, which gave off whiffs of misery, <laughs> even, even though I was relatively happy as a, a young person. But if that's what it took, I was willing to go the way. You, so, you, you yes, paid the I, price. So I committed all those uh, offenses. And, and I'm, I'm really struck by some of the, uh, the early journals that you were published in. The Flying Faucet? Well, I just made that up. Seriously? Yeah. Flying <laughs> 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 Faucet. Because that sounded better than Catskills? <laughs> <laughs> No, I, I wasn't like giving you examples of obscure journals and so so Oink magazine never well, existed. Well, Oink, no, Oink did exist. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah you, you like we tell. believe that. You can't. You can't tell. But yeah, yeah, I was getting published in obscure journals. I didn't care. Um, I mean, at that time, I didn't care where I got published. So, uh, and if you don't care about that, it's quite easy to get published. Uh, <laughs> You have no standards of <clears throat> publication, but it's just a thrill to get published. Sure, sure. And, and then you sent some poems hoping to get published uh, to a review at the University of Arkansas. 
To the press, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. To, to the University of Arkansas Press. And, and you say that that editor did you a great service by putting a paper clip around some of them. Yeah, that was, well, that was, uh, Miller Williams was the, uh, the director of the University of Arkansas Press. And he's um, a wonderful poet, and he has never gotten the acclaim that he really deserves. And um, uh, Lucinda Williams is his daughter, and, but now he's her father since she's more famous than he is. <laughs> But um, and he's he's also forgotten largely that it's forgotten that he was he was President Clinton's second inaugural poet uh, because Clinton, when he was to his credit, when he was uh, governor of Arkansas, was very supportive uh, not only of the university but of the University of Arkansas Press, which had a good poetry list, and he was supported that and Miller Williams. So it was sort of a he chose a native son to come and mm-hmm. deliver the address. But I sent, um, I hadn't had a book published, so I sent uh, a real book. So I sent a manuscript off to him because a friend of mine, uh, Ron Kirchie, uh, and who's a, a California poet, um, had gotten a book published there. And, I, and our poems were a little similar in, in tenor and, uh, and voice and humor, I guess. So I, I gave it a try. And Miller Williams sent back the poems with a very short note, and he had put a paper clip around about 17 out of the 50 or so poems I'd sent out. And the little note said, um, I put a paper clip around these poems, and these are quite good poems. And he said, the other poems don't live up to those poems. So he was telling me that I, some of my poems didn't live up to a standard I had set for myself. There was something about those 17. Yeah, that he, what, be, that he believed in. What was it? What was he different about them? I think um, I think they were a little less tricky. They were less jokey, and um, they were a little less. Cl- I mean, I, I was made a lot of offenses being just too clever for my own good. I think, and 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 some of those poems got very short because they were just shut down with a kind of punchline, uh, and the others had a little more expansiveness to them and, and room in them. They were a little less boxy. So, um, so that paperclip was really worth an MFA to me uh, because uh, I then set out to please this man. I didn't meet him until like 10 years later. But uh, for the next year or two, maybe, I wrote poems. I threw all the other poems out. And I, I, I saw just what he meant. I couldn't quite articulate it. But, um, and I spent a, uh, years uh, trying to please this guy and, and writing poems that were as good as the 17. And I did, and so he published my book. Because he said, if you can write a whole bunch of poems like those, I'll publish your book. And so that's all I needed. Yeah. You will? <laughs> then yeah. Yeah. I'm off to the races. So, it, I, I read somewhere that you sent some poems to Poetry Magazine. When I was 18 or 17, yeah. Got, got rejected. <clears throat> yeah. And uh, how long did you wait before you sent any more to them? Over 25 years, I think. <clears throat> yeah. When I was ready. Yeah. <laughs> I got a, actually, I got a nice letter back from Henry Rago, who was the editor of Poetry Magazine. I was a high school senior, and he actually wrote a nice letter encouraging me uh, not to send in more poems. Um, <laughs> it's very clear about that. But to, uh, to continue, you know. And uh, it was something like 25 years later that I thought I was ready, and sure enough, I was. You've said that you wrote bad poetry until you were in your 40s. 
Well, no, until my mid-30s, I guess. Oh, okay. They weren't published till I was 40. But I, I mean, I started writing, I started figuring out something about writing when I was in my mid-30s or so, or late 30s. What'd you figure out? I figured out how to write the poems that I just read. Okay. Yeah. Whatever I'm doing there, I'm, that's what I figured out. <laughs> no, I well, can't. Is, isn't this because part of what you thought you understood about poetry was that you saw value in difficulty? If yes. it was, if it was yeah. incomprehensible, then that must have been a great poem. Yeah, or tricky. Right? And nobody agreed with that. No, so I, I dared to be clear. I mean, being clear, <laughs> being clear is the real risk in poetry, I think. I mean, people talk about either they, she writes or he writes very risky poetry. I never really bought that word because you're just sitting there. I don't know what you're risking, but um, but I think the real if there is a risk, the risk is to be clear because then you're you're out in the open. They you know people the reader knows what you're doing. Whereas if if you use obscurity as a kind of camouflage, uh, you you become kind of unassailable. I mean you can't be pinned down. So. Um, yeah, I wrote, and I started, uh, also I started admitting some of my personality into the poems, which I was repressing. And uh, that personality was someone who was a lot happier than this miserable persona that I had uh, earlier. And also uh, had a sense of humor. Um, I always liked humor, and my father was sort of the, the humor element of the family. And, but... Um, as we know, uh, humor was um, was uh, was something you didn't want to do in poetry because it was it was too uh, frivolous. It was yeah. too too light. And um, and if you wrote poetry that was humorous, you were you were sent to this kind of ghetto called light verse, um, where I mean I, I love Ogden Nash, and I, I wrote a, a, a very serious essay about Ogden Nash. But that's where you would be put. He was not. He was not taken seriously. And you know what happened? Can I give a short history of humor and and poetry? Of course. But well, you're asking me. Yeah, no, if... yeah. Well, you know. Uh, I mean, know your time is precious. <laughs> <laughs> I, I do have other appointments. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I know you parked in a 15-minute zone. <laughs> Actually, he's right. Uh, but uh, well, you know, I mean, there's, there's, I mean, there was always humor. Uh, humor was a, a, an essential element uh, or part of literature, and you can go back to Roman comedies and uh, and then up to, I mean, Chaucer's. Some of the tales are hilarious, and Shakespeare wrote comedies, and then we have like a meta, the metaphysical poets who, who whose poems uh, depend on the deployment of wit. And then we move into Augustan satire. That's having fun laughing at other people. Um, and then you get to the Romantic poets, and that's where poet, that's where humor dies out, because the Romantics took themselves in a, in a more serious way. Byron's not a real, you know, we leave him aside. But some kind of deal, I think, was struck uh, in the in the around 1800 or 1790s. And the deal was these romantic poets got together in a room and closed the door. And they said, here's what we're going to do. Um, we're going to get rid of sex and humor, and we're going to substitute landscape. <laughs> so, so when you read about those rolling hills, well, no, what are you really not, reading? It's not, re- 
I don't think it's repressed sexuality, but it's uh, and and uh, sex recovered uh, in a kind of kinky way with the Victorians, but but humor really was not allowed back into poetry until I would say right in the 1950s or 60s with people like Philip Larkin and um, and then other people we I mentioned Ron Paget and Kenneth Koch people from the uh, New York school and also the California poets like Ron Kirchhey and Gerald Laughlin and um, and those guys but then it was okay I mean it seemed that I, I didn't need to hide that it was it could be an element in poetry mm-hmm. It, it just seems like you write about real stuff that all of us see, the sky, boats on a river, a barking dog, eating a f- piece of fish, listening to jazz. This is, this is all stuff that we do, too. And when we do it, it's just dull and routine. And when you talk about it, it just seems really profound. So, are, so here's my question. Are all of your moments profound I moments? Have a, and, yes, I have. Are you just that that guy? I have a special gift. It's true, <laughs> but uh, not all of them are. I mean, for instance, there are no moments here. Right? <laughs> uh, maybe, maybe later. But well, I think it's you know it's sort of a matter of if you're if you're a writer, if you're an artist, if you're a writer. You know, one takes on a kind of, uh, not avaricious, but a kind of uh, exploitive view of reality. I mean, because you're always looking for potential material. You're looking for something to write about. And because there are only a few subjects in poetry, four or five, um, you know, Willa, I guess Willa Cather said, um, the fiction writer, she said there are only like four or five human stories um, and she said, but, and this is a direct quote, she said, we, we keep retelling them as desperately as if we'd never heard them before. All right? um, and someone said, all science fiction is definitely two stories. Either we go there or they come here. <laughs> uh, so um, <laughs> so as, a, as a poet, um, one is just, if there are these four or five rooms of emotional content, uh, one is just looking for metaphoric uh, in, uh, ingresses. You're just looking for metaphoric ways in. Yeah. So aging would be one of the five rooms. So, you know, when I read the Tribune that I was the same age as Cheerios, that seemed like a, an ample, uh, a ripe opportunity to enter the room of aging. And because one of the themes of poetry is we're not getting any younger. Yeah. A lot of people have compared you to um, Robert Frost, and you, had, you actually had dinner with him. Lunch with him, yeah. Lunch. Tell us, tell us about that well, I memorable didn't, time. We didn't speak. Um, <laughs> well, he was invited to my... I went to a Jesuit college in the 60s, and he was invited to, uh, to read and speak at my college. Um, and he was quite old. He would be dead within three or four years, I think. And, uh, but I was on the literary magazine, so just as a student representative, a few of us were asked, were invited to have lunch with him in this sort of little f- faculty or priestly lunchroom. Um, but it was kind of, it was made clear, not through words, but through looks, that we weren't to speak. Um, because it could only go downhill. <laughs> I mean, 
So you just sat there and watched him eat? The reputation of the college was at stake in, <laughs> in, in, in jeopardy. Yeah, we basically, he was uh, in, um, he was talking uh, with a few Jesuits at the head of the table, and yet we just watched, watched him eat, and, or, or tried not to watch him eat. Uh, it was more like it. We didn't want to stare at him. But I did, um, technically I had lunch with him. Yeah. It's not the kind of lunch you would imagine having with anybody. But. You wrote a poem uh, about splitting wood in the winter, and the first line of that poem is, Frost covered this decades ago, and Frost will cover it again tonight. Now, I assume you're talking about the weather, but you're also nodding at him, right? Yeah, well, I, you know, um, Eliot talks about this and others, that every, every major poet... Frost, certainly, uh, Yeats, um, they, they take up a space that no one else can occupy anymore. Um, it's sort of like they, they control a certain ground. And it's like you can't have two people on the same base at the same time. And um, I think like the swan, I don't think you can write about a swan without, without Yeats in the back. He's like, he did the swan. You know, he's the swan. And... and um, and this poem came about, I mean, it won't be elaborate, but um, I have a house in, in up above New York City, and there's woods in the back, and I love splitting wood. And um, it's a great exercise, and they say, you know, he who or she who splits wood, you warm yourself twice. You warm yourself when you're splitting the wood, and then you are warmed later by that which you are splitting. Um, and I thought, well, again, I'm looking for a metaphor, and I thought there must be some metaphoric possibilities in splitting wood, but I thought, I thought, well, that's frost. I mean, you can't, you can't go into that area. It's like police tape <laughs> around the woods because that's frost's area. And, uh, <laughs> and then it just, it just bugged me. And finally, I wrote this poem called Splitting Wood. But I, I nodded to frost in the first sentence. Uh, it, it, it starts capitalized. It's the first word in the sentence. So it actually says, frost, uh, frost covered this decades ago and Frost will cover it again tonight, the leafy disarray of these woods. And then it just goes on. But, but I was nodding to Frost. But yeah, so, I mean, that, that's sort of an, a kind of a negative influence, you know, that, that, that uh, you feel... Because it's taboo? Yeah, that you feel you're trespassing. Or yeah. it's, like, it's like a cover song, when someone's covering someone else's song right. and doing a cover of a song that that person possesses. You know, like a, like a great... Like, a, like if you sang... Um, I left my heart in San Francisco. I mean, you're covering Tony Bennett. Now, do you want to cover him disrespectfully? Do you want to, is it an homage to him? Are you doing, uh, misinterpreting his, you know, there's lots <laughs> of uh, types of relationships you can have with the earlier, the predecessor. <laughs> so, uh, it, so it complicates writing. If you read, you know, I mean, if you don't, <laughs> if you don't read, you are immune from any of these anxieties. <laughs> So, <laughs> All right, so how big of an influence on your poetry is Bugs Bunny? Well, um, large. I mean, I, I mean you're, what are you basing this on? <laughs> well, I'm basing this on a statement that you said you're more influenced by Bugs Bunny than you are Emily Dickinson. Okay, <laughs> that was a rare moment, that... <laughs> Well, I mean, briefly, I was asked, a number of writers were asked by the Wall Street Journal three years ago to come up 
to write something about some obsession or habit or odd thing about themselves that readers would be um, kind of surprised to find out. So Juno Diaz, for example, wrote about his obsession with that video game. Is it Grand Theft Auto or Grand something or other? And he wrote about how he just couldn't stop playing it. So I wrote an essay about how one of my influences was Warner Brothers uh, cartoons, uh, Looney Tunes and Merry Melodies, and how I was not a Disney guy at all, because Disney was very bourgeois. I mean, uh, they're, they're married. There's Mickey and Minnie and Donald and Daisy. You know, it's just it's too settled. But there could, there could be no Mrs. Daffy Duck, you know? <laughs> I mean, he's, he's beyond the, the, the conventions of, of marital love. But I did talk about how, uh, um, how just... Um, it really helped my imagination to be in a kind of very pliable world where everything kind of morphed and, you know, you could, you could pull a refrigerator out of your pants or something, you know, and you weren't even wearing pants. Um, <laughs> But just that crazy, pliable world, I thought it was um, probably had some influence on just the, the plasticity of the imagination and how, and how the laws of gravity are suspended quite nicely, as they can be in poetry. And so, um, so the day it came out, they, the Wall Street Journal just did it Saturday, you know, and they just did this incredible graphics job. You know? So on the, on the front page of the Wall Street Journal, up where the, the banner is, right, um, all the, there were all these Looney Tunes characters, and they're all in drag because they're dressed as muses. And Bugs Bunny was a famous cross-dresser anyway. But I, I held this thing in my hand, and I said, I, will, I can die a happy man. I put Daffy Duck on the cover of the Wall Street Journal <laughs> above, the, above the, the banner. You know, so. <laughs> you know th- there's so much vivid imagery in what you write, and I, and I just wonder... Uh, is. Are, is this just one of your gifts, or do you really work at images like this? Um, this one from the poem um, Aristotle. You've got this line, disappointment unshoulders his knapsack here and pitches his ragged tent. Now that's, that's just, that's a beautiful line. So are, you, did that just pop out, or did you really work at that? You know, I don't remember writing much, to tell you the truth. I mean, I, don't, I wouldn't remember where that came from. I don't know. I mean, I think Michael Longley, the Irish poet, was asked, where do your ideas come from or where do your images come from? And he said, well, if I knew, I would go there and I wouldn't come back. You know? <laughs> uh, so, uh, I don't know. It, it's, sometimes it's stuff written in a notebook, you know, I mean, taking notes. But, but there it's, um, you know, a knapsack and a, and a tent. It's just kind of, if you were to picture disappointment as an allegorical character, you know, what would he look like? In this case, he's sort of a, he's a hiker. I don't know why, though. Hmm. But, you know, you just go with these things out of instinct. I mean, it doesn't, you don't want to make perfect sense. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Kind of like tonight. Yeah, it, it, so, so you've, you've talked about uh, poets being the kind of people who look out of a window and fiction writers looking in a window. Can you explain that? Well, I just, I think if you're writing fiction or plays, you have to be extremely interested in other people. And if you're writing poetry, you don't have, that's not necessary. (laughs) You have to be, you have to be interested in yourself. Uh, 
And I, so I, I, as a, if you picture this architecturally, um, yeah, fiction writers are so curious about the private, not just domestic, but sexual and psychological lives of others that they can be pictured peering into uh, the windows of strangers or of other people. And where I would picture the poet as looking out his or her window at the world and saying, this is the way I see the world. You know, like, uh, you know, I went out and I saw the, all these daffodils. Um, you know, there's nobody else in that poem but Wordsworth. And I, I was saying this class or session with students we had yesterday, which was really enjoyable, that I try to have, I have very few people in my poems except me. The dog is there occasionally, but, uh, and uh, in love poems there's a, uh, another person there. But uh, usually there's nobody else, and my parents are in my poems sometimes. I couldn't write poems. My parents were never in my poems till after they were dead. Then, then I could write about them for some reason or other. But, um, but I, I said that, if, that the fewer people you have in your poems, the more alone you are with the reader. And I want to be completely alone with the reader. I think of the poems. I mean, I'm happy to get up and read poems and perform them and, or whatever. But I, I, I'm writing uh, in, in, in silence for, for a person who's got a book in her hand or his hand. And I want to be very al- alone with that person. I don't want to talk about mom and dad or my uncle. or um, I actually don't even want to talk about anything um, about myself. I don't, want to talk, I don't want to talk autobiographically because I don't have an autobiographical persona. You know, you can read, you could read all these books and you wouldn't, you wouldn't know much about me. Um, you would know about this persona who is uh, who's not me, but a kind of refinement or an improvement, a definite improvement over me. But he is not burdened with uh, a job or, or family problems or or that kind of thing. He's more of a kind of a spectatorial figure. He's just looking at something, you know, out of nowhere. But he doesn't bring a knapsack full of autobiographical baggage with him and unload it on the reader uh, because he assumes that the reader does not want that uh, to be unloaded on him. Well, here's a line from a poem, though, where I'm wondering if you are revealing something about who, who you are. So this is from your poem, Vocation, where you're looking at constellations in the, uh, in the night sky. And you have this line that you're reminded, after many jumbled days and nights of my true vocation, keeping an eye on things, whether they existed or not, recumbent under the random stars. So I'm wondering, are you telling us, this, this is your vocation, is to, is to kind of bear witness to these Well, things. that's his vocation, I mean, and, and mine partially. I mean, that's our jobs as poets, is to, uh, is to observe and to report. Uh, and to, I mean, a lot of my, uh, my wife used to criticize me about this, that so many poems, my, my, my character is lying down. You know, and she said, why don't you get him to do something? I mean, it's... <laughs> He's like, he's like these people in Hopper paintings. They're just kind of immobilized. But he's, he's often like looking at the ceiling or looking out the window but on a couch or in a field. And, uh, but, you know, I, my persona is, is fashioned out of the cloth of, of English romantic poetry, basically. I mean, in, in English romantic poetry, you have this figure of the the um, the wanderer, uh, 
uh, the dawdler, the, uh, the daydreamer, you know, a man who, he walks through a landscape, he has, you know, there's nothing to do but walk through a landscape, and he f- sits by a wayside bench and he falls into some reverie or speculation, and then that's the poem, that's, that's pretty much it, that's all that's required. And so I just love that whole idea of um, endless time and, and staring at the constellations or looking at a tree or something, that, that whole sense of slowing down. And uh, Max, Max Beerbaum said that, because um, he, he was a great champion of, of wasting time, which is really not wasting time, it's spending it well. Um, he said the, the ant sets an example for us all but it is not a good one. <laughs> you, you have some harsh things to say about how poetry is taught. And you've said uh, that high school is where poetry goes to die. And, and, and you've, you even have a poem about this. You, you, you want to respond to that or you want me to keep well, going? Well, I, I mean, if you have the right teachers who are teaching the right poetry, it doesn't have to die there, but... Um, I mean, I'm as guilty of this as, as anybody, but I, I think one of the reasons that people lose interest in high school is not the fault of teachers, it's just that they're, it's the fault of adolescents. I mean, it's, it's because, I mean, one of the things about adolescents is, at least as I experienced it, was uh, one is interested in acceleration and speed, whether it's car speed or whether today it's computer speed or instant texting or messaging. It's all, you want to, everything has to get, like, go faster. And poetry, obviously, is, a, is an appeal to slow down. And that's, I mean, one reason poetry comes in lines is that the effect of that is that it, um, it asks you not to rush through it as you could with prose. Stop here and come back in the poem. You know, every time the poem does not go out to the end of the line, the poet is therefore a kind of prose avoidance system. You know, we have to stop it before um, we turn into journalists or something. So, uh, uh, careful. Careful there. But, but so the line ends and then it, you go back in the poem. So the, the, the shape of the poem is always telling you, come, ba- come back in. Come back into the body of the poem. Rejoin the, the, the field of words that are in this poem. And that's that kind of powerful, nonlinear, recur, uh, kind of recurrent um, thing that's going on in poems. Well, and, and, you, and you have a poem called Introduction to Poetry, which is sort of a zero dark 30 of poem analysis, right? Where you talk about torturing the meaning out of it. Yeah. And... Um, are you aware that some academic type has actually done an academic analysis of that poem? No. I saw it online. It is, yeah, she killed it. Yeah, Yeah, she totally (laughs) killed it. Well, because because your point in that uh, that poem is that the poet has obviously failed to communicate, right? And so we have to pound some sort of meaning out of it. Well, I guess it's it's just trying to get at or make fun of the uh, tendency in classrooms to... uh, put uh, an incredible inflow, a disproportionate em- uh, emphasis on interpretation. You know, what does the poem mean? And um, as I was sort of saying yesterday, in poetry, the language is used in such a way that it does not really want to be brushed aside in order to find meaning. The, the language uh, resists that kind of, it should resist, 
put, puts resistance up against that kind of dismissive um, substitution for, for uh, sub- substituting meaning for what the poem is actually saying. And when Frost was asked at one point to explain one of his, po- one of his poems, uh, he said, oh, you want me to say it worse? You know? <laughs> I mean, I just said it. That's what it means. Um, and to start talking about it would be to produce an inferior, te- uh, inferior text. And not only that, but you wouldn't know if, that was, if his explanation was true or not. Then you'd have someone interpreting his, his interpretation. And then you just have this hall of mirrors of interpretations after interpretations. So, um, it does seem like that's, a lot of schools do that to literature, to poetry. Yeah. Instead of literature, we call it textual analysis. Right. You know, we, we call it all, these, all of these things. And it seems like it just takes the fun out of reading. Well, also, it just, uh, there are so many pleasures that don't require teachers. And I think, um, <laughs> I mean, not all those pleasures, but literary pleasures. Um, I mean, I, I wrote an article once called Poetry, Pleasure, and the Hedonist Reader. And I have, I think it's maybe seven pleasures that you get out of poetry. And, and, the, and like the pleasure of metaphoric connection, the pleasure of imaginative travel, the pleasure of rhythm, the pleasure of sound. Um, and, the, and the seventh and last pleasure is the pleasure of meaning. Because I, I, I mean, I went, I went to graduate school. Uh, I mean, if you don't have a head for, for challenging text, there's no real point in being in graduate school. I mean, you can look at my copy of um, the collected Wallace Stevens or, or Pierce Plowman, and you will find you know, just marginal comments uh, all over the place. I, I, I have a real taste for it. Um, but I don't write that way. And, uh, and I feel that... Uh, the teacher kind of almost imposes him or herself between the, the poem and the student um, by choosing poems that require interpretation. Because if you choose poems that, that don't require your uh, intermediacy, then there's no class, really. And this is what you're trying to do, though, with your Poetry 180 yeah. program, right? Yeah. Tell us about it. Well, Poetry 180 was simply a program for American high schools. Um, it was um, me finding 180 poems when I was Poet Laureate and putting them on a website attached to the Library of Congress website with some instructions for teachers. And the idea, the suggestion was, why not have a poem read every day in high school over a loudspeaker or an assembly, whenever usually high schools have a time when everyone hears the same thing. Just have someone read one of these poems. Here's 180 of them. They're clear. They're coherent. They're, they don't require explication. Uh, they, they're just and and it wasn't meant to compete with teaching or classroom analysis. It was meant to complement it. So then it turned into their two. It turned into two print anthologies. So there's really like 360 poems out there that are I hear from many teachers are very useful in high school classrooms. And because I always, th- I always think that, you know, poetry should be taught chronologically backwards. I know in like survey courses, you start with Chaucer. It's a ridiculous place to start, you know? So I think if you start with contemporary poetry, 
that you know you hook students on that, right. and then you can walk students chronologically backward into modernism and and, and even into then into the nineteenth century. But um, so that was the idea of Poetry One Eighty was just a, a complement to uh, classroom discussion and also to show students contemporary poetry, because high school teachers are the salt of the earth. I mean, they're incredibly busy, and they have so little time to do something like keep up with contemporary poetry. Some of them do, of course, great. But if a teacher relies on a textbook or an anthology, anthologies don't keep up with what's going on today usually. I mean, we have like the William Carlos Williams poems, like the Red Wheelbarrow and stuff like that. And I was saying yesterday, those poems are like, they're now almost 100 years old. And we treat them as like the latest thing that just you know, came out. And um, so Poetry 180 is also telling students, this is how poetry sounds right now. Because most of the poems in there were like written in the last... 20 years, maybe. What about hip-hop or spoken word kind of uh, things? Would, would you include that in how poetry could be taught? I don't know. I mean, I, uh, this, uh, I gave a reading a while just a few weeks ago, and this rather elderly gentleman came up to me, and he said, what do you think of hip-hop music? And, uh, and I, was, I said a few things about it, and then I, I said, Are you, do you listen to hip-hop music? And he said, well, at intersections, I do. <laughs> so. uh, I don't know if you're aware of this, but I wrote, a, uh, I wrote a poem for this evening's occasion. I know you're asked to write poems on the occasion of 9-11, Grand Central Station turning 100 years old. I, I wrote one. May, well, can we? Uh, may I, may can I share we hear it? With you? Of course. All right. Well, yes, now you can. Well, yeah, yeah. 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 It's my show. <clears throat> it's, this is uh, while preparing to interview Billy Collins. The stack of books came two, three at a time from Amazon, creating an online clamor from other poets who said people who buy Billy Collins poems also like me and often buy us together. <laughs> But I am monogamous for the time being, and I read about details of his life where he is swinging from a hammock, lighting a cigarette, listening to Thelonious Monk. And I wonder why my life details seem so dull. But they are like his details, but his are profound. The faint tapping from the crockpot in the kitchen reminds me that my daughter is coming over for dinner tonight so my wife can help her with her taxes. I walk to the closet to get my vitamins, seven each morning, to ward off the deadly sins of heart disease, cancer, prostate enlargement, muscle loss, bone loss, the common cold, and all other maladies that have not yet been discovered. My hand hovers over other jars, the hemlock, the arsenic, the anthrax, and decide to swallow those later if the interview with Billy goes badly. Preparing for Billy Collins has, made me, has me reading poems of his all the time, instead of only when I grieve. Tonight I lie in bed and think about the Big Dipper spilling ink into the sky and taking off Emily Dickinson's clothes and a three-year-old reciting his poem, Litany. And I descend into the deep water below Earth's surface, past the fracking, into the core, where I crawl out of the ooze, amoeba-like, then divide, then wriggle like a tadpole, then grow short legs, then arms that pull me onto land, then legs strong enough to hold me upright, then I'm running, then flying, 
suspended in the updraft, updraft of his next stanza, where the poetry creates lift and I see into the sun. You have learned well. Yeah, baby. I just pulled that out just while we were over here waiting <laughs> to get started. I had no idea how easy this was. Well, <laughs> but getting back to me. <laughs> you have said that we turn to poetry when we are looking for something. Yeah. Uh, and, and so is that why, like a commemoration poem for 9-11 or a... Centennial for a well, I think the, I think the the verb look uh, turning to is interesting. You know that people turn to poetry. Um, you don't say they we turn to sculpture or we don't turn to ballet. I don't think. Uh, I don't know when when there is a moment of um, a crisis, which could be uh, something uh, national or even global, like September 11th. Uh, or uh, moments of uh, high importance, like weddings or funerals, uh, and lots of stuff in between, birthdays or whatever. We we often turn to verse for, um, I think it's for kind of a stabilizing influence. You know, that uh, the verse not only reminds us <clears throat> that we're in a community of feeling, and we're not the only ones to be feeling this, but it also connects us to a kind of history of feeling. And, um, and usually the rhythms and the sounds of poetry have a kind of stabilizing, I guess I've used that word, but a stabilizing and therefore kind of comforting effect. But it's interesting that after, right after 9-11, there was a lot of, a lot of talk about poetry. And uh, no one said, well, you know, we've just suffered this. We've been attacked from another country, and we should all like go to the movies or something. Uh, you know, no one. It was all. It was all about poetry. So it shows you that um, there is some kind of powerful recognition in poet that, that poetry is, uh, is 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 a is a great accompaniment in a way to uh, to important events in our personal lives or in the lives of the nation. This is going to sound like a, a facetious question, but it's 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 really not. Um, but you you have talked about poetry as being becoming autobiography, and that that has taken over poetry. How, so how is poetry different from something like Facebook, which is all autobiography? Well, Facebook does doesn't achieve metaphor; it just stays Facebook. You know, I mean, it just I'm going out for a pizza. Great. To, I wish I could go with you. What kind of pizza are you having? Wow, I love pizza. I mean, I don't know, it's just not, it's not going anywhere. Um, but, I mean, poetry, if, if a poem starts autobiographically uh, and just stays on the level of narrative autobiography, it, it fails to interest me, and it really should, the writer should go down the hall and, and join the fiction class or the memoir class. What poetry does, if it starts autobiographically, if it's, if, it's, if it's any good, or personally, if it just is going to get my interest, is that it lifts, out of, it lifts itself out of the particularities of the, 
of the writer's life into a condition of metaphor. And the metaphor includes the reader because the metaphor is general language. It's not, you know, particular language. It's not about your uncle and this fishing trip you took. Uh, it's about something greater that everybody can plug into. Mm-hmm. So that's, I think that's what, what poetry can do that um, other kinds of discourse are, are unable to do or simply not their job to do. Sure. Now, we have a number of people in our audience and who will be watching this who are writers or aspiring writers. What advice can you give them? Um, well, to be, to be respectful of the reader or you know, to be at least reader conscious uh, that to, to, to realize that self, self-expression itself, I think, is, is, is wildly overrated as an activity. Uh, you know, Zadie Smith, Zadie Smith said, if you want to express yourself, just go, go out in the backyard and ring a bell. Um, uh, I mean, I, the whole idea for me is, to, is, as Bourget says, to capture the reader. It's capture. Uh, you capture the reader and you do it through strategies, and you, you do it through seductive technique, um, which sounds rather demonic or something, but I just mean a seductive t- technique would be having a clear title on the poem and, and not writing a poem that's deflective of entry, uh, a poem that just welcomes the reader into it um, and is not obstructive in any way. And um, picturing a kind of imaginary reader I, I, you know, when I'm conducting these workshops, I sometimes say, you know, okay, you've, you've written this poem. Imagine a reader reads the poem and then says to you, I'm not sure what you're talking about. You should include the response to that reader in the poem. You know, tell, tell them what you're talking about. What are you getting at? I know some writers who actually put a picture of someone yeah. next to their monitor, next to their legal pad or whatever. Yeah. Do you do something like no, that? No, no. It's just no, a... It's all... No, it's just... Because I'm, I'm writing to myself, really. I mean, I'm writing to someone who's like me. Um, or I'm writing to maybe other poets. But I, I think the advice is really... Poetry is sort of a mixture of uh, clarity and mystery, I think. And it's very important to know when to be clear and when to be mysterious. And that's something that's it's very hard to teach. It, you can only learn it by reading a lot of other poetry. But it's knowing that there are what cards to turn over and what cards to leave face down. And if you turn all the cards over, the poem is simple-minded. But if you leave them all face down, there's no game either. You can't play that. It's just impenetrable obscurity. And um, often mistakes are, I think, tactical mistakes are made in poetry when... Um, when someone tries to be mysterious about something that just should be clear. You know, I mean, <laughs> this is about apple picking with your mother. Why didn't you say so or call it apple picking with my mother? It, you don't mention apple or mother. Um, <laughs> so flip, we, need a, we have to see a card. That's a card that needs to be turned over. Now, how you feel about your mother, that's a, that's a mysterious card. You know, that's something that is is probably fraught with ambivalence and is not to be simplified or, or uh, trivialized by, by, by statement, by you know, overt statement. So leave those cards down. But at least we have to know you're in an orchard. I mean, that, there's no secret there, right? But it's, it, I mean, we're, we're giggling, giggling, but it's, it's almost every poem that's 
is not working, is usually is guilty of, of one of those two sins, of being clear about something that will, you can't be clear about, or being mysterious about something that should be obvious, should be given. I think you have a poem that you would like to finish off our time. Uh, sure, yeah. I didn't know we were... What kind of poem would you like? Um, a concluding see. poem, perhaps? A concluding poem. <laughs> poem to finish interview with Billy Collins. Okay. Okay, here's, here's one. Um, I got it. So it's... Uh, there's a new... Um, well, it's not that new, but... <clears throat> was it five or seven years ago, a new wing at the... Um, Metropolitan Museum in New York of, uh, for Greek and Roman statuary, and it's just absolutely gorgeous. There's a translucent roof, and uh, the stat- it's never seen statues look so good in that in that light. And of course, there are many of them because they're ancient are uh, damaged. And the poem is called "Greek and Roman Statuary." The tip of the nose seems to, f- sorry. The tip of the nose seemed the first to be lost, then the arms and legs, and later the stone penis, if such a thing were featured. And often an entire head followed the nose, as it might have done when bread was baking in the side streets of ancient Rome. No hope for the flute, once attached to the lips of that satyr with the puffed-out cheeks, nor for the staff the shepherd boy once leaned on. The sword no longer gripped by the warrior, the poor lost ears of the sleeping boy, and whatever it is Aphrodite once held in her severed hand. But the torso is another story, middleman, last to go, bluntly surviving, propped up on a pedestal with a length of pipe, and the mighty stone ass endures, so smooth and fundamental, no one hesitates to leave the group and walk behind to stare. And that is the way it goes here in the diffused light from the translucent roof, one missing extremity after another, digits that got too close to the slicer of time, hands snapped off by the clock, whole limbs caught in the mortal thresher. But outside on the city streets, it is raining and the pavement shines with the crisscross traffic of living bodies, hundreds of noses still intact arms swinging and hands grasping, the skin still warm and foreheads glistening. It's anyone's guess when the day will come when there is nothing left of us but the bare, solid plinth we once stood upon, now exposed to the open air, just the wind in the trees and the shadows of clouds sleeping, sweeping over its hard marble surface. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.